Welcome to the Sean Boy Podcast. Welcome unicorns, wizards of their sticks, and all bottom dwellers. It is I again, the Uni-King, and today I have a hoot of a show. Today I unveil Ruth's Vendetta, a local band from the local community, raising money for domestic violence. Put together by West Louise, all money was given to that donation. The venue was at the farmer's market with all necessary COVID-19 concerns addressed proper there at London, Kentucky. I know of Ruthless Vendetta from when John Snyder told me about him, and also from a Bill Spray, good friend of mine, CZ Customs, custom drum work, you need it done, and uh, you'll hear uh, old Bill's drums there on the, the recording you're about to hear, and uh, those were put together from John Tyler, Ruthless Vendetta, they're amazing drummer. And uh, they did a lot of new material and some covers like Metallica and Alice in Chains. And uh, it's about an hour of raw classic with modern twist to it. You know, I'm interested in showcasing original new bands and Ruthless Vendetta is at the top of my list. So I'm really pleased to showcase, showcase that today in today's episode. Next on the episode's agenda here, uh, we got current events, and uh, I'll talk about the two-day kayaking trip that Bill invited me to go on, and uh, i do about 20 minutes on that, and uh, thereafter all the music. And to finish it off, I do a talk on what I've entitled, After 40 Years of Living, What I've Learned, a speech, but as always here, what I found funny this week, about three or four minutes of uh, just beaver madness, I'm telling you. We all have those embarrassing moments in time, space, whenever we're floating around this ball of the earth, wherever we may happen to be planted at when we was grown. And, uh, we all see things from different perspectives and different ideals and things, and uh, I'm sure it's the same no matter where you live at. Sometimes, when you hear something, or you see something, the immediate response in your brain, without saying any words or anything, is like a loud scream of somebody just going off and going, oh, why is this happening, or some crazy thing like that. I was recently listening to the Joe Rogan Experience, of course, because I'm obsessed with his show and uh, all his guests. And his brain seems to mirror mine a little bit, <laughs> without all the, without all the healthiness. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm basically Joe Rogan with. <laughs> Without the health aspect that he has. So basically a slob that likes looking up things. And being generally curious about everything. <laughs> but anywho. 
what I was getting at there, uh, Joe Rogan brought up something called the Screaming Beaver clip. I've, and he was talking to Lex Friedman. And when I found the video, it's a video of a beaver. And it's screaming, but it's like completely still. And then when it screams, the facial expressions on this beaver is to die for. <laughs> and uh, there's like a little comment said by a prominent politician and uh, happens to be a woman. And uh, yeah, that's, I'm just going to go ahead and play that video first. That way you'll get the gist of why Screaming Beaver is so funny. Oh yeah, the Screaming Beaver, there's nothing but rolling green hills in the background like he's knighted from Queen or something. <laughs> and then he just makes this expression on his... I'll put the video up on the Sean Boycast uh, fan page. and uh, I think it's one of the... I don't know why it's so funny to me, but it is. But anyway, here's this politician... And uh, what she said, and then uh, afterwards, what you can assume anybody in their brain would be thinking is being vocalized by the screaming beaver. Let's hear some important moments from celebs, politicians, and influential people, shall we? Here's Kimberly Gelfoyle, a politician. Anybody here got uh, four kids? Three kids? You got four? Four. Three, okay. All right, all right. I don't know why I asked that. Oh, I know why I asked it. Ah! But it was effective and it did its job. It made its intended audience laugh and show their teeth. It was that moment when the person asking to sit in the most respected seat in our country imitated a disabled reporter, someone he outranked in privilege, power, and the capacity to fight back. It, it kind of broke my heart. Mr. Gruber, I've been accused that I'm going to berate you or something, and I, and I hope that you won't feel that way when I get done. But night before last, I was at the Kennedy Center Honors, where they honest, honored uh, Tom Hanks, famously Forrest Gump, the ultimate in successful stupid man. Are you stupid? I don't think so, no. Does MIT employ stupid people? Not to my knowledge. Okay. So you're a smart man who said some, as the ranking member said, some really stupid things. And you said the same. Is that correct? I, the comments I made were really inexcusable.
I'd like to welcome you to Sean's Live and Local Sounds here at London. Here in London, Kentucky, the farmer's market, where a ruthless vendetta is about to play. And it's going to get crazy. As you can tell, they're warming up. And uh, everybody's doing that thing where they're all playing at once, doing sound check. It's quite, it's always interesting how bands do this. I love it. It's great. But anywho, uh, they're going to do a full set here. And this is for a benefit for a good cause called domestic disturbance and awareness, all the rest of it and all that. So Buddy Westway's putting this on. It's going to be a good show, and I hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. With that said, I'll just be quiet now and let them finish tuning up. There is one little part, like I think the third song they play here, you're going to hear a loud screeching, high-pitched, you know, hot mic kind of sound, but that's the way it works in live music. Sometimes you're going to have problems, and uh, Wes quickly fixed that after some time, and uh, that goes away pretty quick. I'm sorry about whoever's eardrums hear that, but uh, that happens in live sound, and sometimes you have to deal with it, and Wes got it done pretty quick, so I still left the song on there. I think the song that they were on was uh, pretty killer, so even with all the screeching, I really liked it, so I decided to leave it in.
current events this episode, I'm going to tell the story of a two-day trip down Big South Fork in Somerset, Kentucky, with a group of the Spray family, and I was invited by Bill, good buddy of mine, to go down the river in rented kayaks. The, the kayaks was an old town brand. Uh, they rented two-person kayaks, so we had extra room for camping gear. And we were to stay over one night. So it was kind of like a, I started off with a light packing list and just took the bare essentials that I could fit in a kayak and go camping with. And ended up bringing a tarp and a little seat chair that I slept in. The kayaks had to be returned at 6 p.m. on Sunday. And it was now Saturday morning around 8 a.m. And we had 24 and a half miles or so to go. With a campsite to decide on at the end of our first day. A shuttle bus took us from our finish point so we could get a look at it and see where we're going to finish at. Then to our start point. It happened to be... A short bus, and of course, I had to make the reference. Oh, wow, this is the kind of bus I rode on growing up, guys. And we laughed all the way to the start point on the short bus, and it was great. Before we got in the river, we had to unpack the bus, move the kayaks from the trailer on the back of the bus, to the launch-off point, maybe 200 feet from the bus. The lady that did our safety uh, briefing was also the rental and bus driver for the kayaking rental company. And she was great, entertaining, and informative. The kayak felt safe and rigid, and uh, we all picked our boats and Decided which ones was what. And there were two kids that was uh, under 13, I think, and uh, they shared a kayak. And, they were, you know, they had a two-person kayak that they rented and uh, for extra gear and stuff. And, uh, yeah, the kayak, you know, we entered the water and uh, left Huron there somewhat around 9 a.m. The work in completing a two-day river kayak trip was going to be harder than any one of us had thought about in actual reality. When the real world conditions like rain, lightning, and the weight of the boat, and how much you had to paddle sink in, uh, suddenly it was like, oh, we're really going to do 24 miles. (laughs) The first five miles were the most memorable for everyone, I think. 
the big South Fork River section from here on to a road and ramp dock where we were to be picked up at. The first five miles of this was, uh, you know, pretty adventurous, little class ones. We ain't never been down or anything like that. And then for the rest 18 to 20 miles was all just flat water and you're doing all the work and hardly no current at all. So that was uh, fun to realize on the water. The river was low and a lot of the hang-ups or, you know, a lot of the hang-ups we had was not being able to read the river, like where the channel was. There's this V thing that kayakers talk about. You got to hit the V so you can get through the middle of the current and unobstructed, but sometimes there's stuff in your way and you can't help it. So there's that. On the far right next to the break, or to the bank, the strongest part of the current was flowing. And over just another couple of feet, not quite all the way over on the bank, was a current, but not main current, to the far right. This was a path that experienced characters would have taken because all of the, all of the way at the end of the rapid was an overhung boulder that was halfway into the river so that if you happen to be in the far right next to the bank well then you were sure to get trapped under the rock and that's exactly what happened to three of us there <laughs> And uh, it was pretty traumatic. So, uh, we had people in gear get trapped under there. And, like, they're trying to push this kayak out of there. And it's filling up the whole of it. The, the hull of it is filling up with water because it's pointed toward the rushing current. So, it took two people behind this thing to push it and two of us on the other side of the bank to pull it with a rope and they pushed and finally it barely lodged out of there. And we had to get that back because that's a lot of money you lose a kayak or having to come and get it. Um, this took a toll on our endurance and the two girls were shaken after this, after experiencing all this. I took the lesser current, the right middle half of the river but right before you came out of it, a rock stopped me dead, and I was stuck there on the rocks. And uh, as I was doing that, they were all pinned. There were some people in a kayak pinned under the rock, so I was like, holy shit. <laughs> I thought somebody was maybe in there. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> You know, that's a risk you take by kayaking sometimes on a crazy rapid somewhere. You find yourself in one of those situations. <sighs> Soon our day would end with us finding camp around 6 p.m. before dark so we could set up camp. After much looking for the right kind of place to set up camp, there was a lot of places, there's a place with trees and a 
clear flat land up there. Underbrush showing we stopped and old Carl there, he got out first thinking the sand was okay or you know, it looked like solid ground. And as soon as he stepped out, he sunk down to his waist. So we had to find kind of like a special way up. I think there was a rock up there somewhere that we kind of climbed up on and got onto there. So it was kind of weird how to get in camp, but it worked. So while we were in camp there, uh, I rather enjoyed uh, the slowdown pace of everything. You know, getting out of the kayak after a long day of paddling. Uh, we knew we had another great day of paddling to finish up on time and not going to be charged any extra money for, you know, every 15 minutes you're late, there's a late fee. So there's that. But in camp there, you know, most people had a, uh, they packed a hammock and a tarp. And it was a perfect, you know, it's perfect camping gear for this little deal because everything's got to fit in your kayak and stuff. And that's definitely less room it takes for a whole tent set up and everything. So that was pretty smart all i brought was a tarp and my little chair that folds up and i always sleep on my chair out in the woods and i don't know what i'm going to do when it breaks probably buy another one exactly like it but we had a fire and bill offered me some instant tea it was delicious he really turned me on to the importance of having instant tea when you're out in the woods it is monumental can't go without it. And, uh, yeah, so then, uh, overnight there while we're at camp, you know, I tended to the fire and made sure it's pretty well burning good. There about one in the morning, I think it started sprinkling and raining a little bit and I knew it was coming on and we knew it was going to rain our trip and it was going to rain a long time. And it started raining that night on and off and uh, more on than off. <laughs> and uh, I just put my little chair under a little tarp that they had set up. I didn't even have to set my tarp up. Um, so I just stayed under there with the fire in the distance there and enjoyed it. Then the next day we woke up and got some coffee and slowly come around to packing everything up in camp. Put everything back in the kayaks, get back in the kayaks, push off. And then the rains really started coming. It started off slow in the morning. And then the rain really started hitting good. And uh, we were paddling. And we, uh, you know, this day we had nine miles to go. So stopped kind of in the middle of the whole deal there. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> It's quite interesting uh, doing it with a group of people like that. And they were all so hospitable, if that's even a word. There you go, hospitable. <laughs> but uh, I really enjoyed that two-day kayaking trip. I recommend it to anyone. I think it was $60 for the kayak rental. And, I don't know, some other fees for some other stuff, I don't know, but 
it was really great that I got invited to do that and I enjoyed it. Overall, that trip was, uh, it was like a little spiritual thing for me, I guess. Like I got to go to nature and huff it, you know, on a kayak and do all that. And, uh, that would really stay with me for a while. So I really appreciate that inviting me there. Bill, if you're, he's not listening, but you know, still. In the absence, I thank you, Betty. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, on this current events right here, I just wanted to start the whole thing about talking about nature and what that all means to me. I wanted to start that off with that story, and that's it was a good way to start my podcast about nature here. Thank you for your continued ear. On this episode of my personal take, I'm going to go over something on my own without any notes or anything. And I've entitled it What I've Learned After 40 Years of Living. And I'm going to do this from a, my own personal reality point of view. It's going to be a bunch of stuff I'm probably going to cover here. So, reality as I know it. Well, you can quickly kind of categorize your experiences and everything and all the things that happen to you. Clearly see there's a physical world where, you know, apples grow and flowers grow and Blossom, people grow up. And uh, all the physical world, even the thoughts you have are physical. You can see it happening in the brain, and that's still the physical world. Ball lightning is a physical world. Well, and then you have this other world called when you dream. Why is it that you can remember some dreams? And remember them the next day. Why do we dream? We dream because of some unknown reason that is yet to reveal itself to why we dream. See, I, I don't think the brain or any of the systems that we have of our five senses are any bit flawed. Now, some people have bad genes or grew up a different way and maybe some of those senses are skewed but for the most part everybody's got a working system known as your body and soul so there's the dream world and you know i don't believe our biological life makes mistakes only i believe that evolution decides and I hate to say it in a way like, you know, I wish there, I wish there was words that I could say and 
really get at what it means. Like there's people that study all kinds of different animals and humans and they pull from many different resources that they've gathered like evolutionary biologists. These people study the human behavior and animal behavior and also the very tiny places like cells <laughs> and uh, you know that kind of world and they can see clear correlations between what they've studied and how humans behave. So there's something. Another world that I like to think about is the spiritual world. And I've been trying to visit that one quite often. The spiritual world is it's something you are not allowed to experience until you know how to shut everything down that is you physically. You don't use no eyesight. And if your eyes are open and you can see, you don't put a meaning to it. Meaning you don't give it any validity for what it is. So in the spiritual world, and, you know, I know some people are probably laughing. Oh, you talking about spirit? Whatever the fuck. But uh, in the spiritual world, there is no five senses. Because if you want to talk to your spirit, you're going to have to turn off your ego and whoever you are. So you can experience that. I have yet to experience that. I have yet to talk to my higher self. I don't know who it is. I don't even think it's a who. I just think it's a, that's what it is. But I do feel like there's clues along the way in your life. Like, let's say you do trial and error. And you do trial and error so much that it becomes a habit. And that trial and error is you. I think it happens to a lot of people. People are afraid to try new things or seek things out that are neat and whatever because they live off their ego and what's pleasant and nice to them. Never going against their own grain. Never experiencing what it is to suffer and how beneficial suffering really is when you do it correctly. Like, if you suffer through trying to want to learn something new that you didn't know before and you suffer greatly because of it. The more you suffer, the more you learn and the better you get at it. So I don't know why everybody tries to do exactly what comes naturally, which you should do, but you shouldn't be allowed. You shouldn't be afraid to try anything. In my opinion. You know, one thing that I've learned about all those different kind of states is, you know, and there's a spiritual world and something I think is closely tied to the spiritual world, but maybe not directly. Maybe it's like a stepping stone before that you get to experience the higher you is a... Uh, 
it is psychedelics like uh, psilocybin mushrooms and DMT. Both of those chemicals, for whatever reason, gets into your body and then it's got receptors that the psilocybin molecule latches onto perfectly in your brain. Like they were meant to go together. And there is like a lethal dose for, you know, especially DMT. Well, actually, I don't think there is a lethal dose. I just think, uh, I don't know. Not my forte there. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is, why is it that you can take some substance that grows naturally upon the planet and then you're taken into Cartoonville? Why is that allowed? Why do you dream and also see things? Why are there certain symbolism and meaning in your dreams? I think it's because it's that's your subconscious, whatever that is, trying to tell you maybe what you're missing or you're not getting. And I think with psilocybin too, like most people take it in a party environment with their friends and it's never the right set and setting, which is very important before you even take the drug. Whatever drug it is. But like, it, I would never use drugs just to feel good. I would use drugs because they're beneficial in some way to me. And I really do believe that psychedelics i've never had a psychedelic experience i've never had the pleasure of trying that out but one thing you can gather from it is there is another state you go to and most people describe it as well they can't describe it so there's that and then you have the spiritual world that I was talking about before. I remember listening to a lecture from the East, like from India, and it was a spiritual leader of some sort. And he was talking to a Westerner that come over to get a guru and try to get enlightened and everything proper. And when I say proper, you know, there's a lot of people claiming to be a guru or a spiritual leader that are fucking just vile pieces of shit faking the funk. You know, if you go over and do real meditation with one of these gurus over there, he's going to take you out in the mountains and he's going to feed you a little thing of rice a day. And he's just going to look at you and go, I'm glad you came. Just sit there. And meditate and don't think of nothing. And then, you know, when you can't get a certain teaching or a lesson he's trying to teach you, he's not going to tell you what to do. He's going to only instruct you of what you can't do. Because a guru cannot describe to you what your spirit is or how to contact it. He can give you clues on how to open that up within yourself. But ultimately, the work is on you. So there's that. 
And uh, what this certain person was saying to a Westerner there was, he said, he said, give me all the psychedelic drugs that you have on you. <laughs> and uh, this was Ramadas. If I remember, I hope I don't butcher this, but <laughs> he went up to his guru and his guru says, give me all the psychedelic acid that you have. And Ramadas gave his guru a bunch, I mean like 10 hits of acid or some crazy shit. And, uh, this guru started popping all, all of them. And he sat there in his little meditative state and Ramadas said he was sweating quite profusely, but in a blissful state and not affected. And after some hours and hours and hours went by, the guru did not trip at all. He did not go into any state. He was, he opened his eyes periodically and was talking normal, like it, nothing bothered him walking around, having a chat, having a great time. There was no going up or coming down from the trip. Nothing happened to this guru after he ate like 10 hits or something crazy. I remember the exact amount, but it was a high dose of it. And what I found remarkable is this guru said to Ramadas, he's like, it does not work on me because I go there all the time and I am there. This is, this is the farther lights, he said. Or maybe I heard that from another guru, but <laughs> it's what it is. They call it the farther lights. And it's a... Uh, it's that place you go to, like you can reach this meditative state to where you start tripping. But unlike with tripping with drugs, if you do it the right way with a guru and by yourself, within yourself, then I don't care how good the trip is. There's no better trip than naturally doing it within yourself. So that's how those, the spiritual world and psychedelics are kind of, in, in a way, they kind of validate without really a scientific explanation or anything to me. And another thing that you have to think about is the different perceptions that there are. There's uh, many different ways you can perceive things. Two people see the same thing happening, different angles. Each one of them is going to have vastly different perceptions. They're not even facing the same way toward it. So, and your perceptions can always be, you can always use the wrong perception on a, any given second of the day. Another thing that I think is uh, probably a taboo or something 
most people don't think about is uh, the taboo of death. <laughs> There's a taboo of death because everybody's scared to die. Why should you be a scared to die? I mean, it's a real question. Why are you afraid to die? Everybody wants to go to heaven, right? Everybody wants something nice to happen. I don't think it's necessarily about what you like or what's... It is what is. Like... <laughs> This probably comes from, I think this comes from Zen. But uh, there's a Zen master that said, who were, your, who were you before your mother and father were born? Most people be like, well, you probably wouldn't be anything because you weren't born. How do you know you wasn't a soul floating around until you got a body? That could have happened. And then we get into. In the afterlife. Is, is the way I've kind of. Thought about it is. I don't believe there's anything. Any such thing as time. In the afterlife. I believe when you die. And you exit the body. The perception of time is lost, just like your perception of words is lost, just like your perception of everything you know how to be a human is lost because you don't ever, you don't have a brain then, you don't have a body, you don't have any of that. You're just the eternal unknown at that point. And uh, the reason I think there's no time is because I believe humans live in a in this, like you see in real reality today, is <laughs> some people from the East called us the great time binders. We're always binded up in time. Most people from the East, they say that time is no more than just play. And, uh, yeah. So, what are we really? Then you can, here's another reality that I like thinking about. And it's the very small reality. The smallest scales and largest scales don't look or act anything alike. You take the universe as we know it, like the very large, the, the regular universe that we can witness with our human eye and intellect and we can understand it. And then you go down to the very small, like we're atoms and, uh, you know, <laughs> electrons, photons, all that stuff, the microcosm. You go down to that world. The two worlds that I just identified there, they don't add up together. Like the physics in one does not fit the physics in the other. And this is, this is my personal opinion so far on exactly what's going on here is 
you have atoms and they clump together and form, you know, whatever material that it's, whatever it's doing to show up as a, I'm a piece of furniture at that level, at the level of Adam or the atoms and, you know, <laughs> electrons, protons, muons, all this stuff. The nature of this world, there's not even any time in this world. There's, there's no, it just is. I can't even describe it. <laughs> it's quantum mechanics is what it is. And I'm not even going to get into that. It's going to take like two months of research to even speak 10 minutes about quantum mechanics. <laughs> but, uh, one thing about the Smarge Law, uh, large world is, is there's this saying in the East called, actually it comes out of the, what does it come out of? It's probably the Baba Gita or something like that, but it's as above, so below. There's this correspondence to everything. Like the way it happens on earth is the way it happened in a large universe is the way it happens inside your body because you are a universe in yourself. So, kind of have that thing. And, uh, yeah, we're the great time binders. We're just living in time, acting out our limited roles in the moment we're in. And, uh, yeah, we're actually conscious. That means that you're able to consciously question, ask questions. Deers ain't allowed to ask questions. If they ask questions, they do it in a language or a way that is probably mostly deaf to us. This is, this is what I mean, like, uh, with what is real reality is, is you take that small universe, like at the atom, and then you take the big universe, like you see with planets and everything. The physics of both of these worlds do not add up to each other and don't make any sense whatsoever. So, I always analogized what this was like with a TV screen. Take a regular tube television. There's these little pixels that make up a whole picture. You fucking may be nothing more. Like atoms may be pixels. And then all these atoms produce a great big old, you know, super computer, super TV. And we may be all simulated. That means we may be living in a physical universe that's biological in nature. But we may have higher users. And this just all may be a video screen of sorts <laughs> so there's that kind of reality of what I've kind of gathered thus far <laughs> there's a guy that I like called Ken Weber and he's a spiritual leader as well he's probably he's probably one of the few people that understands 
a lot about meditation and how beneficial and what it really is. And he has these four quadrants. You know, you have the interior you, and the interior you is I. Then you have the exterior you, we, all of us. Then you have the interior collective. I think that one's actually, it would be it. I think. <laughs> anyway, there's these four quadrants that Ken Weber talks about. And these four quadrants are how we perceive the world. And these four quadrants do not touch each other. Like the inner world of you, your inner dialogue, is not the dialogue of all of us together. Everybody has their own eye. And then we have our own way that we perceive what we think about everything else and everybody around us. So there's this inner world and exterior world as a collective. And uh, it's real interesting because one thing that he talked about that I really, it really hit home to me. And also Jordan Peterson talked about this as well. And that is, there's myth, there's mythological truths. And then there's ultimate truth. And I'm afraid the ultimate truths in reality are not as much as people think they are. Like you got to remember, anytime somebody says a theory... That's somebody's, you know, sometimes they get the guess about 90% correct. And they're like, we're 90% sure this is good. But any day something can pop out of existence, you know, a brilliant person figure something out. I think that person's going to be Eric Weinstein, personally. <laughs> uh, he has an interesting geometrical unity theory that I like. I'm sure I butchered all that just now, but that's what's going on. <laughs> so you have mythological truth, ultimate truth, and you have all these different things that are true and untrue. And it's like, it's very confusing in the world. You're born into the world and you're thrown to the wolves pretty much. I mean, you have parents, and if they were good parents, they raised you good. You got some necessary things you needed. <laughs> but uh, what I've learned here after 40 years of living is that basically any answer that you get, there's always room for I don't know. It's very easy to say you do know some. It's much harder. And it, it's really a detriment to society if you talk about something or kind of go at something and say, this is true, and you don't give up the details of how true or some parts of it may be speculative. You should go into those details. 
should tell the person that. And then they can make up their mind if you're full of shit or not. So it's not always about giving the quick, popular answer. You really look at something on all sides of it. You're going to find out, you know, <laughs> you don't know as much as you think you do. And I'm not meaning that toward any specific creed, race, religion, whatever. Like, here you go. I am a very scientific kind of person. I'm a free, open thinker. You know, that whole thing. I'm a classic liberal. Minus all socialism and stupid fucking people that's on the left right now. I'm not one of those idiots. I think I'm... <laughs> I want to be called a conservative liberal. <laughs> that's what I am. A conservative liberal. That's... This day forward, I shall ever be known as my political affiliation. <laughs> conservative liberal. That's what I am. <laughs> I grew up in this world in a unique way. And it wasn't all great. My upbringing, my childhood. But I can't say it was the worst thing in the world either. I learned. I, what I've learned after 40 years really is there's some people on the planet that is totally running off of that brain. They're running off their inner ego. They don't ever contact their higher self because they don't even know how to do that. And these people live in the same patterns that you see in people. You see it in addicts. You see it in people that... And I hate that I'm not trying to point anything out or whatever but like let's say you know somebody that's been married seven or eight times or something something crazy there's something in life this person is not getting on some level some form of that they're not getting something if they go through it that many times something is askew <laughs> and I see people just live off of impulse. I feel this way. I'm going to devote my whole time and energy to all this. And in the end, it may be nonsense. And there's nothing wrong with doing that either. Actually, I don't even think you... To be a good person, to love life, I don't even think you could... I think you could be totally homeless, not have a penny to your name, still get by and be a happy person in this fucking world. Convict sitting in a jail cell by himself, no contact with anybody. With enough meditation, that person right there could be the most powerful planet on the planet, the person on the planet. <laughs> oh, well, I think that's a cue that I've talked long enough for my personal take on what I've learned in 40 years. But I uh, hope you enjoyed my podcast and everything before this. But it's been a long night. 
You're probably tired of hearing my country bumpkin ass. So, uh, I'm going to let you unicorns go to bed. And you have a good night's sleep, sir.